Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm not sure what happened with the audio there, but it was a little bit uh, rusty. But uh, welcome to uh, to the show this evening. I thought I'd end it quick. Got a great show for you tonight. Not going to be doing Coach's Corner, uh, but I will be uh, featuring three great uh, golf professionals, uh, nonetheless. Uh, Pete Buchanan, of course, who's been on uh, as a fairly regular guest uh, over the last uh, few years. He's going to be joining me here, and he's brought in two uh, other great golf professionals, James Kyle and Buck Mayers, is uh, also going to be joining us. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about them in just a second. But in the meantime, uh, let me remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursdays from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. Uh, we might run a little bit shorter tonight uh, just because we're not going to have the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, but nonetheless, we'll have a great discussion. Uh, quickest way to find me is to go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live or just type golf talk live up in the search key. You can also find the show at iTunes.com or Stitcher.com uh, for those of you that like to listen through that, uh, uh, those platforms. And again, just type in Golf Talk Live up in the search key and that will take you to the podcast there. Uh, for anyone that wants to call in during the live broadcast, you can do so uh, by calling area code 646-716-4667 uh, or you can email any questions or comments to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And of course, I update uh, the shows on social media uh, on Facebook, uh, go to Golf Talk Live blog is the main page there, or you can uh, find it on my personal page. And also at uh, uh, my Twitter handle, Ted and Buck CEO, and CEO, of course, is in capital letters. Uh, you'll find it's there as well, uh, uh, highlights and, and information on upcoming shows and who my guests are going to be. So make sure you check those out in social media. And uh, if you want to, as I said, if you want to come on the show, if you're interested in being a guest, uh, if you're in the golf profession, whether you're a teacher professional, uh, or maybe you've uh, got a great product out there that's helping many of the golfers uh, improve their scores, uh, by all means, reach out to me at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com, and I'll be more than happy to fit you in the schedule. Uh, as I mentioned, I've got three great professionals on tonight, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit about each to them, and I'm going to bring them on. We're going to talk about tonight a uh, very interesting co- topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the state of golf instruction today. Uh, lots of great uh, talk topics within that. And these three gentlemen, plus myself, we're going to talk a little bit about each of them. So let me just introduce them, and I will uh, bring all three of them here live on the air with me. Uh, first up, as I mentioned, uh, Pete Buchanan. He's been on the show many, many times uh, in uh, the past on Coach's Corner and as a special guest. Uh, he's the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf, uh, LLC, uh, which houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. Uh, With over 30 years' experience, uh, Pete has been simplifying his golf swing philosophy in an effort to, of course, make it simple for players like you uh, to play this great game. Uh, Also, a newcomer to the show, uh, but uh, nonetheless uh, an equally great professional, James T. Kyle. He's a PGA professional and owner of the James Kyle Golf Academy. He was also the 2014 West Central 
Chapter PGA Teacher of the Year, as well as the 2012 West Central Chapter PGA Junior Golf Leader of the Year. Uh, he was also, the, in 2011, the U.S. Kids Golf Top 50 Teacher Honorable Mention. He's going to be joining us here as well. And rounding up, uh, I guess you could call this kind of a panel tonight, uh, Buck Mayers. Uh, he's the Director of Instruction and Co-Chairman uh, director of the Texas Wounded Warrior Foundation Golf Tournament, which is held at Escondido uh, Golf and Lake Club. Uh, he's also a top 100 club fitter by Ping, uh, co-published the training manual for 3D research and data studies, uh, voted one of America's top uh, instructors by Golf Magazine in 2002, and uh, featured video for Golf Digest with two-time long drive champion uh, Jamie Sedlowski, uh, also the co-owner and founder of the Downrange Warriors Long Drive Team and uh, contributing writer for uh, some great uh, uh, publications, uh, Texas uh, Golfer, Avid Golfer, and On the Links Magazine. So without other, uh, further hesitation, let me bring on all three of these great guys, uh, Pete Buchanan, James Kyle, and Buck Mayers. Gentlemen, welcome to Golf Talk Live. Thanks, Ted. Hey, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, no problem. And Buck, I see that you uh, made it in just under the wire, so uh, welcome to you as well. Thank you, sir. Can you hear All me right. okay? All right. Well, guys, uh, as I mentioned in the in the opening, uh, uh, yeah, uh, up in the opening monologue, we're going to talk about the state of in- instruction uh, of golf instruction in today's uh, sort of market or economy. And Pete, I'm going to let you start off, maybe just sort of opening up some dialogue here uh, for this conversation. So, Pete, why don't you? Uh, just talk about maybe some general points that you want to cover tonight, and uh, and then we'll continue the conversation. You know, I think, Ted, it all got started on this topic when we were just looking overall at, you know, how golf instruction is today. Um, you know, there are, are certain groups that are saying, you know, lessons are declining. There are some saying it's still the same. Um, we've got several different camps that seem to be going back and forth at each other for the, we're right, you're right, I'm wrong, you're wrong. Um, and so we just thought we would kind of look at the overall picture and, and really see, you know, where are we really at? You know, because I know between Buck and, and James and myself, it's not declining for us, but I mean, we're busy. But we just wanted to, to really lay it out there and, and just look at the overall picture of the game and, and really just get a conversation going on not only where the state of it is, but also how do we bridge the gap between all the different camps that are going on? Because in the end, we're trying to bring this to the, to the players. And, you know, we don't need to be in a, in a confusing manner and or uh, too scientific or too biomechanical or, you know, too much data how do we go about looking at the overall picture? Because we know that every area has its basis in the game and every area helps, but how do we look at it from an overall standpoint and get it to where it's the best way to present it for the masses to not only, uh, you know, keep them engaged in the game, but also to continue to grow the game uh, and get more people to take lessons and get more people to play golf. So that's really how it started you know, I talked to, to Buck and James a little bit, and I thought, hey, it'd be a pretty good idea if we could, you know, do this together and, and you know, have a conversation. And, uh, you know, I brought it to you, which is great to put it on. So I think it's going to be beneficial for everybody just to get an idea of, you know, different topics that we're going to cover tonight and just, you know, wh- where are we teaching the game today and, and what's the best way to go about, yeah. you know, making it as conducive uh, for those that are, are receiving it, the players, uh, that we can 
Uh, yeah, can, can you hear me? This is Bob. Yeah, and great way to open up the... Uh, the... Um, yeah. Go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead, Bob. Yeah, uh, again, appreciate having me on, Ted, and I, I love your last name, by the way. So, <laughs> um, I agree with Pete. I, I, I think the I think the teachers that are really dedicated to growing the game, and you know, my feeling is that teaching is the lifeblood of growing the game. And I think that we're we're losing some customers to a lot of the social uh, applications like Top Golf and those type of influences because it's. It's a fun way for those guys to break out with a little bit of time, maybe a couple hours a week to, you know, have dinner and drinks and so forth with their friends and family and play a little golf at the same time. Um, and unfortunately that's, that's kind of dented, uh, in my opinion, the public golf usage of golf courses and so forth. But the serious golfers is growing. I mean, if you look at the state of professional golf, how many, how many professional golf tours do we have now? I think it's like 17. And if you look at the volume right. of good players, yeah. we have that are trying to play those tours, you know, it's, it's tremendously tough. I have guys that I teach that are trying to get on the PGA tour that have to go to Monday qualifiers at web.com events that they got to shoot 63, 64 just to get in. Um, so, and, and I, and I feel the same way about the top amateur golf. I feel the same. I mean, I had a kid that went, won the big 12 last year that played number three on a team at Oklahoma state. So the depth of college golf today is, you know, it's, it's deeper than it's ever been. And also junior golf, if you look at the AJGA and, and how many different types of tournaments that are around our state in Texas anyway, uh, I think that the tournament that we have in Waco called the Starburst, I think we had 650 to 700 kids this year. So I think it's grown 300% in the last 10 years. So, so I think the business for the guys that teach a lot that are dedicated to growing the game, I think we're busier than ever. Uh, unfortunately, I think the millennial uh, culture, uh, it, not so much. Uh, and, you know, I think that's where we struggle. Yeah, and I agree. And, and James, I want to get you in here as well and, and uh, just sort of get your opening thoughts. Uh, I imagine you agree with a lot of what both Pete and, and Buck had just said, um, but uh, you might have uh, some additional thoughts that you might want to add. So you go ahead, and then, and then we'll get into uh, a little bit more detailed um, discussions, okay? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Buck, uh, at least in my world here in the Tampa area. Uh, I'm actually president of the board of the Greater Tampa Junior Golf Association, and it's kind of my like little secret volunteer project that I do behind the scenes. And our association over the last five years specifically has grown a ton, uh, probably 25 30% in membership. And, you know, your more elite players like Buck mentioned uh, – that side of golf is busier than ever juniors, you know, your older amateur players that are preparing to play in some, you know, state events or, or USGA events, uh, by all means, that type of golfer is busy, busy. Uh, you know, I would say on the retirement level that it seems that those golfers are probably, you know, looking for lessons less than, than your younger ones. Uh, but overall, he's right. Uh, you're better players, single digit. Uh, they are certainly uh, learning to do the game the most right now. Yeah, and I agree. I think all three of you made some, some excellent points to, to start things off. I, I think that on the professional level, uh, Buck, as you stated, and, and James, as you concurred, 
I don't think there's an issue, and, and I would um, agree with you that it's on the increase. Um, but golf as a whole, I think, is on the decline in some areas. And let me point out some of the areas. Um, obviously, some of our older golfers, um, for a number of different reasons, uh, number one, obviously, some of them are, are getting to the point where uh, maybe their health is, is impairing them from playing. So they've sort of dropped out. They're not playing as often. Um, and, and James, as you just pointed out, they're not taking as many lessons, obviously, at this point. They figure, well, this is the game I've got, and I'm going to kind of you know, play with what I've got here, and there's no point in, you know, I'm 70 years old, there's no point in trying to change a lot at this stage of my life. So from that standpoint, a lot of our, our much older golfers, the lessons are declining. There's sort of that middle group, um, and, and Buck, you had mentioned, let me just back up for a second, Buck, you had mentioned about a lot of the great junior programs out there, and, that, and that's true, for a lot of the pro, uh, programs that are funneling into uh, a more competitive uh, type golf format, whether it be the tours, uh, whether it be uh, college uh, or even high school golf in some uh, markets. But there's the segment of the population where there's no, they're not interested in playing uh, on, on a, a competitive level other than maybe with their friends or, or, or so forth. And they're finding it difficult because the game is not an easy game to learn. It takes time. It takes a lot of um, patience. It takes a lot of uh, stick to if you will. And the other thing that it takes, uh, besides uh, some money, yeah, it takes a lot of money, exactly. But it also um, it cuts into a lot of your time. And I think one of the areas that golf needs to make a, a change in is not to just have all of this encompassed uh, you know, four to six hour rounds of golf. Um, not everybody can, can allocate that kind of time or even wants to anymore in that generation. As you pointed out, I think, Buck, about the millennials. So in your opinion, and, and we'll go through the, the panel again, if you will, um, and Pete, I'll, I'll come back to you here just to, to give you a moment. Um, golf lessons being taken is, is definitely on the decline. Where do you see it declining? Uh, is it a generational thing? Is it... Um, uh, different in each market, do you think? Uh, where are you seeing more often uh, in your particular experience, where are you seeing some declines? And, and then James and Buck, I'll, I'll let you guys uh, chime in as well. Uh, Pete, go ahead. Well, I think more than anything else, as, as you just stated, I, I think in, in the older uh, generation, um, I'll call them the more experienced golfers. I shouldn't say the older golfers, more experienced, but um, they're taking them less as, as they as they age, and I think um, you know I look at uh, my kids are, are 28 and 25, and I look at a lot of those kids who aren't in a competitive situation in golf, and they're just doing other things. I mean, they're not playing much golf. I mean, if they are, you know, they'll go to the range with their buddies and, and beat a few balls, and, and that's about it. So I think it's it's kind of the the younger generation who's come up with you know, more activities to do, more electronics, uh, more gadgets to play with. I think, you know, they've gone in different areas. So I think it's, you know, from 25-ish to 35 in that range. I think that's where we're seeing a decline in those that are that are taking lessons. Um, and so it's it, – and there's a lot of them. And, and that's, that's a hard thing to look at because we've got a lot of older members moving out and we don't have a, a, a good bunch coming in. And so I think that's where we're seeing a decline. Um, especially at least in my area, that's what I'm seeing. And so I think that's where we're trying to find out, you know, how do we get to them? 
Um, you know, the, the top golf, as Buck mentioned, has got them because it's an entertainment value. But how do we get them in into back into sure. golf, back into playing, back into lessons? So that's where I'm seeing it. Yeah, and, and let me, right. And, and before uh, before you um, uh, add your thoughts, James, let me just point out some interesting um, statistics here very quickly. I had a guest on probably about a month ago who uh, works out in the Phoenix area. He's not a, a, a professional, a golf professional, but he developed an app uh, to help book uh, tee times and, and so forth. I won't get into all the specifics right now, but um, he's been studying uh, many of the, the member courses out there in the Phoenix area, and he came up with some very interesting statistics. And one of the statistics, he said that roughly about 1% of all uh, – and, and he's talking about his specific area – of club members are actually playing golf with any sort of regularity. In other words, out of the membership, only 1%, maybe 2% at the most, uh, are playing at least once a week or more. Um, Some are only playing once a month. Uh, Some are only playing maybe once a year, possibly in their club championship. Um, That's, that's to me, brings up a whole other issue and we're going to talk about a little bit about that as well but James I just wanted to point that out first and then I want to carry that into our conversation here in a moment but James uh, your thought where do you see it declining in, in your market well I would agree with Pete completely that uh, you know it's that age where the uh, millennials you know where they're graduating college if you will uh, and you know maybe starting their families uh, I actually have a couple of clients now who have recently rejoined our club because their children are now 10 years old and the children are learning golf from me. And because they're learning golf, the families are coming back in. These same families resigned the club uh, 10 years ago when the children were born. So I think there's certainly something, you know, that's occurring from that age out of college uh, working, you know, obviously, you know, they don't have enough income to support a club membership or even, you know, just the ability right. to go play golf on the weekends. Uh, I think that's that's a big deal until, you know, there's probably some certain age, uh, and I don't know really what the number is, but I'm guessing it's somewhere around 45, 50, where they get to the point where they can actually start playing golf again. Yeah, and and that's a great point as well. I agree with that exactly, um, as you've just pointed out, James. I think that I think one of the other factors as well is it depends, you know, years ago when I was growing up and it may be the same for, for the three of you, you know, my father took me out to the golf course when I was very young. Uh, you know, I, I started playing with some regularity when I was about seven years old, but uh, he took me out basically when I was able to stand on my two feet uh, and took me up to the driving range. Of course, I couldn't hit the ball very well, but you know, he introduced me to the game and there was a certain uh, appeal to it. Um, that's not happening with the same regularity that it once did. Certainly if golf is in the family, it may continue. But if golf is, uh, is something that was not traditionally played in, say, your family, um, then it's not likely a parent or, or parents are going to take you to the golf course uh, if they've never been really exposed to it at an early age. So um, that's another issue as well. And I just want to touch on, Buck, I'm going to let you come in here in just a second, but I want to touch on something, James, that you just you know, talked about, uh, that getting some of the kids coming in now. You know, maybe you're teaching the parents and uh, some of the kids are coming in now. I'm wondering if maybe the, the industry needs to take a different approach and really focus on, instead of focusing on juniors and just on women's golf and, and this, that, and the other, that maybe they have to 
adopt a different principle and go after the family golf. In other words, more young millennial families, if you will, uh, are wanting to do things together, other activities. Golf is a very individual sport. So a lot of people perceive it that way, whereas maybe if the industry created a forum where it's more family-oriented, um, you know, that might – and I know some certainly are, but I think there's a lot that's still thinking that individual format. Um, I'll get your thoughts on that in just a moment. But, Buck, go ahead. What about your market? Are you seeing pretty much the same as the other two guys or, or maybe something different as far as the decline? Um, certainly, I agree with uh, Pete and James and their analogy of what's going on with them. And, and mine is similar. Um, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier. I just kept a couple of notes here is that, you know, from a time consumption, you know, in today's world with a lot of families with a husband and, and wife both work and they have kids, I mean, there's just not a lot of time in the day that right. they can take five, half, six hours a day. And their weekends are prioritized with, you know, other things that they want to do. And, and, and a lot of times it's soccer or baseball or other sports with the kids. So, um, you yeah. know, so that the time factor is, is huge. And, and secondly, and you kind of tapped into it, but the cost. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate and blessed that I work yeah. at, a, at a high-profile club with a lot of people that, you know, money's not an issue and most of them are retired and, you know, they don't think of those factors yet. When I go see my buddies and my friends that teach golf in Austin or other cities, communities, San Antonio and so forth, they see a, a huge decline just because from a priority standpoint, the family comes first, takes a lot of time. It's very expensive yeah, uh, and it's very difficult. You, you talked about how hard a game is, you know, and, and if, if golf is going to grow, the lifeblood to growing the game, in my opinion, has to have some sort of factors that involve teaching to improving otherwise it's not any fun and, and golf's meant to be played as a game to have fun so you know as james said you know when you're when you're involving the kids if you get more kids involved the parents get involved just not by choice but because they want their kids to be happy and whatever that takes right if the kids involved parents get involved and then there's more activity in the golf programs now you know, from a time consumption, you know, whether it's the first tee programs or some of the other great programs that are out there, there's a lot of six-hole, nine-hole, nine-wine-and-dine type things that we do at our club that I think has added on to our membership growing the way that it has. But, but again, I, I could get into technology, too. I mean, how much time do, does the average kid, if you, if you knew the stats, you could help me out on this, but... I think it's something like 90 to 120 minutes a day that a kid spends on a computer or a phone. You know, we didn't – I don't remember spending any time inside the house when I was growing up. I guess I'm old, but, yeah. you know, uh, you don't see a yeah. lot of kids where the parents drop them off at the golf course and they go play 27 holes and, you know, practice on their short game and have lunch and do it again in the afternoon. Um, so, you know, the, the culture has changed. The environment's changed. I think that um, – those are factors as well. So, but I agree with James and Pete as well. Yeah. I, and, and well said, thank you. Um, you know, I, I think that there are certainly a lot of factors involved, uh, technology and, 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 and I would say one thing that I would disagree a little bit with what you just said, Buck, and that is on the, the time that kids are, are spending on the computer or phone. I think it's actually probably more than 120 minutes a day, at least from some of the kids that I've seen, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, they're just constant, you know, and, and, you know, one of the dangers that, you know, society has now started to realize, and it might seem um, minor to some, but the coordination of young kids 
has actually changed from what it was. Um, unless they specifically get into certain sports, uh, most of the kids that you see out there are not very athletic. And part of the reason is because they're kind of hunched over the computer or their their hands are sort of out in front of them on the phone typing away, you know, uh, texting and so forth, um, their physical development has actually changed. Uh, a lot of kids, you know, uh, have very quick thumbs, but some of the other muscles in their body are not as developed athletically uh, as, as maybe what we might have experienced growing up because we were out playing a lot of different games, baseball and soccer and football and other things like that, in addition to golf. So there's, there's a lot of things that are lost. Uh, and Pete, I, I want to just jump into an area that I know that you uh, kind of specialize in, and that is uh, the simplicity of the game. Is it lost, do you think, that you think that maybe with some of the technology out there, um, as well intended as it was uh, maybe in, in, in the uh, earlier days, it's become too, um, too technical uh, in the last maybe 10 years to the point where it's actually turned people off. It's just too complicated, um, and, and it's actually hurt the game a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts on there about simplicity? Well, I, to a certain degree, I, I agree with you there. Um, the technology and, and the, the biomechanical movements, the science, the launch monitors, all the different things that are out there uh, – have their basis in information as long as that information can be presented to the student in a simplistic manner. And to me, that's really the catalyst. Yes. Can you keep it simple despite all of the data? Um, another thing that I think is crucial, and, and I've talked to, to James and Buck about this, basic, simple cause and effect. <laughs> that is not being taught anymore. Teachers aren't being right. um, taught what cause and effect is. And to me, that is one of the largest areas um, I think, and where instruction has declined. Um, a lot of uh, instruction is motion-based. We're going to move here, we're going to move there, but they're not paying attention to the cause and effect of the impact and how those motions are going to affect what's going on. Um, you have to move this way because our model says you move this way. Well, I can't strike the ball. Well, the model says you move this way. So I think it's gotten lost a little bit in the fact that the cause and effect has declined. You know, I was fortunate. I've told you that before. I, I got to learn from one of the best cause and effect guys to ever teach the game in John Jacobs. And, you know, everything was right. about, you know, what do you want the ball to do? What's the club have to do? What do you have to do to make the club produce that ball flight? And to me, it was always a, a question of let's look at the ball. Let's look at the impact. Let's look at the person, what's going on today. It's the opposite. Let's look at the person. Let's look maybe at the impact. And then lastly, what's the ball doing? I think they've gone backwards uh, in my opinion. So I think a lot of that decline, I think a lot of the difficulty has come in is that the language that is being used relative to some of the new uh, terms and things that are going on is a little bit more complicated than uh, what I think it should be. And I think a lot of the people are turned off because they just don't understand it. Uh, well justified as it is, um, you know, those of us that have been in the game teaching for a long time, we understand what's, what's being said, but I think the masses are having a hard time catching on to that. And I think if we keep it the simple cause and effect and then let those things that are, are working with, I mean, I use the technology. Um, I think it's fabulous, but you have to be able to work yes. it into the scenario in a simplistic manner. Yeah, well said, and and I agree 100% with that, uh, Pete. Um, James, let me ask you something uh, a little bit different here, um, but sort of on the same lines. I think there's a danger as well, and I, I might be wrong, but I, I'm I'm sort of seeing this as as potentially not a good thing. I'm all for you know keeping up with technology. I'm all for 
you know, keeping up with some of the new theories that are out there. But I think there's a danger too that, uh, and just from what I've seen, and, and I see this all the time on social media, everybody, well, you know, I just got certified in this and I just got, um, there seems to be a lot of, of, I guess, instruction uh, or instructors, shall I say, that are continually out trying to up their, um, you know, their, their abilities. And, and I don't see anything wrong with that. But in order to keep up to the latest and greatest, they're so busy keeping up with those certifications that I don't know how they have time to, to get out there and actually teach the game. Um, you know, is there a happy balance that we need to find as instructors, as, as Pete's just pointing out, maybe keeping in a more simple approach? Um, or do we need to maybe not go for every certification that's out there, um, but maybe just focus on the ones that uh, we maybe feel are more, most applicable to, to our style of teaching? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, there are, I think, actually on one of the forums recently, somebody listed all of the possible certifications that are available, and I think it was in the 20s. And, you you know, you sit there and you think to right. yourself, wow, there's 20, 20, 25 certifications available. Well, which one do I do? You know, I'm just, you know, maybe graduating a PGA program, and I want to be a teacher. You know, where do I go? And... You know, there's, as you look at all of them available, uh, personally, I've really never, uh, besides getting involved with Aimpoint, but uh, I don't have any other certifications. I've just kind of, you know, learned by trial and error and uh, listened to my mentors, which I mm-hmm. I believe I've done well on. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, with all the certifications, you know, I'm not sure I would say, you know, which ones that I would not, I would, you know, if, an, if a young pro is asking me, you know, which ones should I do, I probably have a couple in mind that I think are, you know, important to learn from these days. But, boy, there's so many of them. I mean, it's it's confusing even to me, and I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, and, and I, I, let me just preface this a little bit or, or clarify a little bit. I don't want to give the wrong impression because I know there's a lot of uh, golf professionals that, that tune into the show. So I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm criticizing. Um, but I'm like you, you know, James, I, I don't, I don't get into a lot of this because I, I think that there's a lot of great certification programs out there. Don't get me wrong, but there's so many uh, out there and some of them sort of overlap a little bit too, that I think it, you be forever updating um, your certifications on a continual basis that you're really not going to have any opportunity um, really to be able to, um, you know, to be able to, uh, uh, you know, keep sort of abreast of everything. So I don't know, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but at the same token, there comes a point in time that you have to say, okay, uh, enough's enough. And, uh, you know, as you just point out, there's 20 or 30, you know, in the list, uh, you're, so you're forever, you know, looking at, at other possibilities. Um, Buck, what are your thoughts on, on that as well? Uh, you know, I know that it, it's something that, um, you know, that, that there's, there's nothing wrong with, I don't want, again, I'm not trying to uh, criticize about this, but are we, are we making things more difficult in the profession than need be? Um, do we need to keep things more simple as Pete pointed out and as James has alluded to as well? Uh, or, or what do we need to do? to entice more people to want to come out? Well, first let me say something about 
uh, Pete and James both because we have a lot of private messaging that we do in social media. We all three have similar philosophies as far as the state of the game and what's going on between the, the biomechanics and 3D versus 2D and science and simplicity and so forth. But I want to go back to what Pete said about cause and effect. I think that in today's world, from a marketing standpoint, you see a lot of different instructor programs that are geared towards certifications or methodologies because they think that they've, they've found something unique and different than what we learned when we went through the PGA certification, for instance. I mean, the ball flight laws, you know, the science of that has not changed any. You can't change the, the root cause of the effect. Uh, and I agree with Pete that, that some of that's lost, that you know, training under someone like John Jacobs, wow, you know, what a lucky guy Pete's been. You know, I trained under Harvey Pinnock, and yeah. there's probably no one as simple as Harvey Pinnock was. I was the director of his academy for a couple of years, fortunately, but, and I took over 100 golf lessons from him. So, you know, that experience was invaluable for me from an art standpoint that, you know, he didn't believe in anything that had to do with video. In fact, when I started using video, he often criticized me for using it. And I, it, it took me a long time to gather enough, enough nerve to say, you know, I'm not using it for me. Some people are more visual learners. I'm using it for my customers. Right. I can see why they miss it, but they don't necessarily understand. And when you have visual validation, you can't say that it doesn't help. Uh, I'll, I'll get into 3D versus 2D later, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, that's I, I kind of get caught in the middle of both of those because I, I learned under the art. I was a tennis pro before I was a golf pro. So, you know, learning the biomechanics of a tennis swing, golf swing, baseball swing, hockey stick, any stick-to-ball sport is not that different. Um, you know, shaping a golf ball shot uh, is not that difficult for somebody that was a good athlete. Having said that, how many people do we teach that were really good athletes? You made a point earlier about in this generation, how often do you get a, a blank canvas with someone, you know, that's a great athlete that has, has no concept of what they're doing? Well, we love that as a teacher, but you get people that, you know, don't really have a very basic understanding of athleticism to stick the ball for So, um, wow, that's a, that's a tough question and a good question. And we could talk about this the rest of the hour, but, um, no, I, I think from a cause <laughs> affection point, I, I take Pete's, I'm a, I'm a golfer for dummies type mindset. And, you know, the first thing I do is screen my customer. I want to make sure that uh, they have the right equipment. I want to make sure that they don't have physical limitations. I want to know how much, you know, practice they put into it. Um, I want to know, you know, what their goals are. You know, at least I know from a conversation, it doesn't take five to ten minutes to screen your client to find out what the right strategy is for that client. Do I start with the clubs? Do I, st- You know, for somebody that doesn't pl- practice, and I know James and Pete did this already, I'm not going to spend any time on the driving range with somebody that, just likes to play golf. I'm going to take them on the golf course and teach them how to score. So, um, right. anyway, that's that's my input to that. Yeah, and, and I think also too, guys. I, I think that we have to to teach to the player and not to the the method or um, the theory, if you will. And I think what uh, was pointed out earlier is that I think that you know a lot many of these certifications are sort of following around a specific uh, different theory. And it's certainly interesting to discuss, and it's certainly interesting to ponder. Um, But as you just pointed out, uh, 
you know, here you've got one of the, the, the greatest teachers, uh, Harvey Pennick, who has taught some great, great players uh, in his time, never had access to any technology, never used any technology, um, just used his, his, you know, for lack of better words, his God-given talents uh, to be able to, to mold some phenomenal players, um, and, and I'm sure uh, teachers as well. So, again, not not to, to discredit technology, but I think sometimes it's taken uh, a lot of instructors down a path that is not beneficial for them. And again, if we're going to teach to the individual, as uh, Buck, I believe you just pointed out, uh, there's visual learners out there as well as um, uh, as audio and, and so forth. And if the if the instructor is focusing on one theory or focusing on one specific methodology, then think of all of the people that he or she are sort of phasing out from his teaching if they don't fit into that mold. And that's a danger as well. Um, I, I think that what we've got to do is keep things as simple as possible, and we've got to teach to the student and not to a theory or methodology. And I think that's what's happened, uh, especially with some of the younger guys that are coming um, that maybe didn't have the foresight or the ability to learn from some great um, uh, teachers as John Jacobs and, and Harvey Pennick and, and many of the other older uh, teachers out there um, who've had that experience that, that taught you know, basically cause and effect and not through all of these other theories that we're seeing now uh, coming out in the market. Um, Buck, I want to come back to you because you, you've already opened it up, so let's, let's get into it now. Talk a little bit about um, 3D and, and 2D, uh, some of the pros and cons, and then uh, Pete and, and James... Uh, you can jump in as well. Okay, you're going to put me on the spot here. Uh, I'm going to kind of combine <laughs> the bike. Yep. I, I haven't really prepared anything in writing. I just walked off the ring. So, um, you know, from my whole theory in education comes from, from myself personally, selfishly, to learn more. It, it's not necessarily to get any credentials or anything that's going to elevate myself from a status standpoint, I think it just helps me to teach better and become more, as you call, student. The better educated that I am, instead of guessing, I, I have criteria that I think that I needed to, to understand better from a cause and effect standpoint by using, you know, 2D and 3D are the difference in an X-ray to a MRI machine, if you will. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't like guessing. So I wanted to really know the truth. So you were talking about, you know, myths and fallacies and misunderstanding. There's a lot of rubbish out there that I struggled with as a teacher listing, and, and, and I'm not critical of those people because I learn from all different types of instructors, and I think James and, and Pete and I agree on this, is that I try to take pearls of wisdom from all the teachers that have become before me and after me. So I'm not afraid of learning. At the same time, I think it's important to challenge what you call the simplicity or the art of learning because it's really not that difficult. I mean, there's only a certain number of influences to why the bog does what it does. It's either the face or the path or the angle of attack, the speed of where you hit it on the face. And if you have a pretty good understanding from the art standpoint, and then you also have the validation you know, from something that has radar attached for 3D or something like that, because there were misunderstandings, as Pete knows, with John Jacobs' methodology, because a lot of people thought if the ball started left, that the path was left. Well, we now know for sure, 
that more times than not with a better player that the path is probably more to the right than it is to the left because they're shutting the face. The rate of closure of that face is so fast because they sense that they're going to hit it dead right, so they shut the face down. So, And I don't want to bore you with the, the technology aspect of it, but there are some things that we have learned from, from, from the data. Uh, 2D, for instance, if you're just using a video camera, I mean, now the camera speeds are so good today I mean, I've used a, a 3D system now, I think, nine years. James knows this, but I don't think I told Pete this. I don't even use it anymore. And a lot of people ask me why I don't use 3D anymore. It's because my education, I feel like I spent seven years writing a journal on 3D data, that I can use that education, that information, to transition into a simplistic approach to all my students because I understand it better than I did before, if that makes sense. So... Yeah. Anyway, I think that that does help us uh, to simplify the approach or the strategy, if you will, because I, I love teaching beginners as much as I like, like teaching tour players. And everybody asks me that question. I have one today. Is it easier to teach a beginner or a tour player? Well, the tour player is harder because the concepts are different and their attitudes are different and their concepts have a certain criteria that you have to meet. And, and there's only, only so much you can change anyway with somebody that's been doing it for 20 years. I think Pete and James would agree. If you give somebody a blank canvas with somebody and you're starting from scratch, it's a much easier approach. Uh, and they're yeah. hungry for information too. So those are as much fun for me just to help somebody get the ball up in the air. And you better be as simple as you can be to help them get better each week or not coming back. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's a, th- yeah, and that's and I would agree with that, uh, Buck, w- with what you said. You know, j- just here at the end, particularly, I-, I think that we have to. You know, when you're working with somebody, especially new, um, it-, it can be very intimidating to a lot of people that have never picked up a golf club before. They don't know what to expect. Um, I know for a fact many women, particularly, um, are very uncomfortable because they're they're not sure what impacting the ground is going to do. They're afraid that they're going to hurt themselves. Um, so they don't understand that sensation. And I think that you have to kind of really take it a, a very simplistic approach, I believe, as well, uh, when you're working with, with newer students particularly because they don't understand everything that's going on. And, Pete, I know this is something that we've talked about before on the show. Um, I want to get both yours and, and James. Pete, I'll let you go first. And, James, uh, on, on what Buck just said about 3D and, and T, 2D, um, your thoughts on that, some of the pros and cons that you've discovered in your own teaching, and um, what some of the students can benefit uh, from either one. Well, I'm I'm probably the one that has the least amount of uh, work with 3D. I mean, I, I did uh, some of it with, uh, with with Dr. Maxwell, my uh, who's who's a TPI guy, a medical advisor. Um, there definitely is um, some value to it because I. I I, in my conversations with Bucky, you know, it's, I think in looking at 3D, it, it just validated what we already knew. But I think in some cases, you know, there were particular things we thought were happening that actually weren't happening. Um, it was a little bit different. So it was just more validation than anything else on, on what was going on. Um, and a little bit back to, to the ball flight laws. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend John Jacobs a little bit here. Um, in, in the ball flight laws, because in conversations with John, uh, when you had the, the chance to talk to him, he talked about a lot of what he called ball flight foolers. 
And it's right in line with what these machines are telling us today. He knew it. He knew that the face was going to be more influential in, in certain different uh, uh, instances. But he had a basic outline that he used. Um, so I want to defend him a little bit because, you know, I had a lot of people have the benefit of, of you know, being able to stand there and talk with him, uh, which we were able to do. So um, he was he was definitely ahead of a time and a very keen and very sharp individual. So um, I just wanted to, to take the bull by the horns and uh, having worked for the schools for a long time to defend him. But I think in a, uh, you know, 2D versus 3D um you know, Buck mentioned that the cameras are so good today. I mean, you can see a lot of what's going on. Um, I know for me, and, and when you're going back and talking about certifications and certain models, um, I know when I went through some 3D work, um, they had a, a model of a, a positions you had to get into. And, and I got to tell you, um, I couldn't do it. I couldn't get into the positions they wanted me to get in. Um, I just, my body doesn't bend like that. So, um, you know, I went through the whole gamut, and I got a big, big, huge F. I failed on every aspect of uh, where I was supposed to be relative to the model. Um, you know, and my model has always been impact. That's the model I use. I base everything I do off the club and the ball's contact. I don't have a swing model. I developed a swing based on what I thought was the simplest way to get the impact correct. Um, but I've always used impact as the model. So, um yeah, I, I'm probably one on a 2D, 3D. Uh, you know, I'm more 2D oriented, um, but I have I have worked some on it. But um, um, I'm going to bend Buck ears when his ear one of these days on and get some more info on what he's found out because I, I think it's it's uh, like him. I'm interested to find out what more uh, 3D has to offer. So, Pete, forgive me on the Jacobs. Well yet, said. Yet I stand corrected. Oh no, I mean I, I, I wasn't <laughs> meant that way, Buck. I mean he's. You know he's it's it's a it's happened a lot and everybody says he was totally wrong and and I beg to differ he wasn't um, um, because we we've, we've talked about it I mean he knew you know I, I watched a guy hitting straight pulls with an eight iron uh, ball after ball after ball after ball was straight left and uh, he asked me he says what's going on I said well this guy's you know basically end out with a face shot and he goes what gave it away I said the angle of attack this guy hasn't taken a divot in his entire life. Um, you know, if he was actually out to end, he'd be taking a huge root canal over there. So, you know, there'd be a big divot involved. So, I mean, he knew it was there, but from a basic, you know, standpoint, we talked the basics and then obviously we went from there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of, you know, if you, if you had the chance to work and know John, um, you know, I, I, there's just more to him than, than, uh, what some just like to spit out there for, uh, not you, Buck, but I mean, so to the, you know, they keep telling him, well, he had it totally wrong. Well, he sure. didn't. Um, he just didn't. So, anyway, that's my uh, that's my yeah. No, I, and, on and, John. yeah. No, I I agree with yeah. I agree with you, Pete. Yeah, I agree with you, Pete, on that. Um, James, two D and and three D. You know, there's as we've just heard, there's lots of discussion on that. Um, from your student standpoint. Uh, what benefits are they deriving from um, using that technology? What are they, uh, obviously not everybody's a visual person, but obviously it helps you to be able to articulate, as it was pointed out earlier with many of your students, as to what's actually going on and explain to them, you know, here's, here's some of the areas that you need to work on and you can discuss it through video and, and, uh, and other uh, options. And that. What are some of the feedback that you're hearing from your students when you uh, uh, formulate either a 3D or 2D, uh, 2D approach? Certainly, Ted. Uh, for me, 
I technically, I do not own a 3D monitor system. Uh, I have studied it probably, you know, for about the last two years. Uh, some of the guys that have 3D and obviously uh, I have spoke privately with like Buck and uh, a couple of the other, you know, real popular teachers that have 3D. Uh, for me, uh, and like Pete just said, he said it perfectly, uh, you know, learning about it, even though I don't actively use it, uh, really helped to validate some of the things that I always felt were happening. So that's really, you know, and like Buck, Buck said, uh, the education of it uh, really helped to kind of, you know, in a way, things that I maybe I was questioning on my own as a teacher uh, that I felt, okay, I'm doing this correctly. Uh, and as far as 2D is concerned, you know, I do video uh, on my iPad and my iPhone every day. Uh, I, geez, I, I bet I snap 100 videos a day, five days a week. And I don't do it with everybody. I kind of use it where I feel like I should be using it. You know, there's some clients that really don't want to see it. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's that saying, feel versus real. So that's usually whenever I use it yeah. the most is if my client is feeling like they're doing the right thing. And so, you know, I don't necessarily even show the entire video from big, beginning to end. I might stop it and just kind of show them, well, here's what we're working on. You can see that you, you haven't actually accomplished it yet. And so that's what I do. And, and for me, I mean, I do, like I said, a lot of video, uh, but, I actually spend half of my time on the course in playing lessons every week. So I, I only, you know, I'm 20 hours a week on the range and uh, 20 hours a week on the course. So even on the course, I, because now we're in real action, uh, I do video a lot out there because again, you know, where they, they, uh, you know, they're poorly aligned, which is just about the number one thing that occurs when something's wrong on the course and they just don't realize it. So using the video while they're in action uh, really helps to clear things up and, uh, you know, improve their progress for sure. Yeah, and I, I like – and I agree with, with all of you. I think that, um, you know, the, the video speaks volumes. Um, I, I think that there can be a lot learned both from the teacher's standpoint and certainly from the student's. Uh, having that technology in hand and using it, it can uh, be very, very beneficial for assessing uh, some potential problems that the students may be having and then also being able to reinforce them using that technology um, that's available. And you're right, as, as you've all pointed out, the technology today with, with video capture and things like that is just so phenomenal. I mean, even on some of the basic phones now that you have out there or tablets, um, the quality of video is just in incredible. Um, and... So you get to you know to see basically every nuance of the golf swing um, in in very clear uh, and precise uh, visual effects. So um, certainly a benefit I think for all teacher professionals to have access, whether you uh, want to go to the level of a 3D or not, is I think up to an individual. Um, some may prefer it uh, and want to go that route, and some may just be uh, satisfied with the traditional uh, 2D video. Um, I want to ask you guys something uh, as a group. And uh, whoever wants to chime in first, uh, by all means. One of the things that uh, I had, to, uh, Pete, I know you'll know him off, off the, the, the cuff here, but um, I had a guest on. He's been on many, many times on the Coach's Corner, and he was a, a guest here recently, uh, Clint Wright. Uh, 
one of the greats. He's uh, from out in South Carolina, and uh, very, very, um, very smart when it comes, particularly with the short game. And what he's been doing here lately is actually giving some short game, uh, or he, as he calls them, the third shot clinics, um, where he'll bring his students in and, and give them some stats. And some of the interesting stats, I'll just give you a couple here uh, that he's gathered over the years and, and that's been, been proven scientifically. But um, roughly 43%, depending on who, who, who does the stats, is on the putting surface of, of your shots per round. Uh, probably less than 14% is in the long game and then the rest fall into the other areas of the short game. So my question to the three of you is if over 50, if not 60, maybe 70% plus of all the shots taken in a, in a, in a, a round of golf are on the short game, uh, and on the, the putting surface, why is so much emphasis being put on the golf swing? Anyone want to jump in first? I'll do it. Let the, the, you know, I think <laughs> they, to a certain extent, they go hand in hand. Um, I know for a lot, uh, okay. I'll do a lot of pitching work because it's, it's a great benefit for the full swing. Um, but I think, too, I think one right. of the reasons why a lot of the full swing is being taught is, is there's another aspect of golf that's big right now is how far can we mash it down the fairway? How long can you hit it? Distance, long, hit it far. And I think that's a big emphasis. Um, you know, a 325-yard drive counts the same as a four-foot putt. I mean, it's, if you make it, it's still one. Um, but I think you're right. There's a, there's a large percentage of the game that is um, – under 100 yards, um, I have a tracking system that I use, a scorecard per se. Um, I think James has had a chance to look at it, and it tracks every shot that you take and shows you from tee to green where you are and uh, gives you a pretty good reading as to where your shots are failing uh, when you're trying to score and where they're coming from. And for the most part, you know, you see it's a, a five or six on a hole, and he'll say, well, if I could just drive it better, I'd be fine. Well, you were in the fairway, and you still made a mm-hmm. seven. So – you know, it's not necessarily coming from that area, but yeah, I think there's a big emphasis on hitting it a long ways. And I think that's why, um, you know, obviously we're still working on the swing. The swing's always going to be a part of it. Um, especially with some players, um, you know, they, uh, they don't have a lot of speed. So basically every shot they hit is a full one, except, you know, from, from 50 yards, you know, they're, they're taking a pretty good whack at it to get it to go. So we still have to, to work on, you know, the full motion of what's going on. But I think in that regard, um, you're going to find that um, it's beneficial to, to leading into helping some of the other shots uh, with the full swing motion. They go hand in hand. So, um, you know, I don't know if I totally answered your question, but I went first. So there you go. I'll go second. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that was great. That was great, Pete. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. So, I always ask, especially the young players, whenever I start working with them, and even after a few lessons, you know, you ask them, all right, what do you want the ball to do? And everybody, the first answer is, I want it to go far. No matter, I mean, it's just, that is the number one answer. And, you know, there's lots of the players that are older that do come to take lessons. They are always, their first response is, whenever you ask them, you know, what are you looking for? Why well, don't I'm losing distance? So no one ever comes to me for my 
putting lessons first, even though I have lots of great stuff about putting. Uh, they all, it's all about how good they're hitting it and they're not hitting it solid and they want it to go farther. And that includes, you know, some of the clients that show up that are 80 years old. And even though their driver is only going 150 yards, they want to know if I can get them to 175 because that's where their buddies are in the group. <laughs> and, you know, so everybody wants it to go far. They want to do that before they get to the green for sure. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, part of the problem that the industry faces is, uh, and Pete, I know we've talked about this many, many times on the show over the years, there's been a big marketing effort um, by the golf industry to, you know, grip it and rip it, if you will, uh, especially since players like John Daly and Bubba Watts and others come on there that, that can just belt it a mile. Um, there's been a big emphasis by the manufacturers uh, of equipment and, and by the industry as a whole uh, to just, you know, be able to, to, you know, mash it down the fairway. But I think, uh, Buck, and, and I want to get your thoughts on this as well, I think that we as professionals have to, obviously we have to, first and foremost, we have to ask our students why, why they want to play golf. Why are they there in the first place? Are they, you know, interesting in playing uh, competitive golf? Are they just out to have a good time? Um, you know, whatever the reasons for playing first and foremost but then the second question is, what's more important, scoring well or having a pitcher-perfect swing and, and hitting pretty shots uh, on the driving range? I think we have to differentiate the two and decide um, as a player what it is they want most and then build the, the lesson tee, if you will, around their answer. If they just want to be able to hit it 300 yards down, the, then there's no point in even moving over to the practice tee uh, or over to the practice green or the, the, the bunkers, uh, greenside bunkers, and, and working on that part of the game because that's not what the student wants. And I would, I would challenge most people out there that ultimately they want to be able to score well. Certainly they want to be able to hit good shots, but they want to score well. So if we're spending uh, or allowing them to spend most of their time out on the lesson tee learning how to hit the ball in such a way to – hit it further down the fairway, if that represents a small percentage of their game, then they're, we're really doing them, I think, a, dis, a, a disservice because they're not going to improve, as, as the stats will show you, this is why handicaps have not gone down because everybody, and I'm not saying this as an instructor, but I'm talking about the players themselves, are focusing on hitting perfect shots and hitting it further and not focusing on the areas of the game that are actually going to help improve their score. So I think in our, in our assessments, I think we need to ask them what's most important to them. And I'm sure most instructors are doing that, but for some reason it's not, it's not happening. So, Buck, I want you to jump in here as well. Um, I'm sure you get a lot of the same feedback from your students. You know, I want to be able to hit it further. I want to obviously hit, be able to hit it straighter. Um, are we asking them or should we be asking them how important is score to you? Well, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, on the head as far as the screening process. I, I think, and, and the analogy by Pete and James were outstanding. Um, if you don't screen the player, I, my perspective is that what they say they do and what they really do can be very different. So if you took a player and you screened them and you asked them all the right questions and you said the first hour and a half that I'm going to spend with you is actually watching you play the game, I think the teacher would have a better perspective of what the strategy be, should be if they really want to score better. 
you can figure that out in three three holes. So that's where I start. I screen them first. I take them on the golf course. And I, I agree with James 100%. I spend at least 60% of the time with my players on the golf course and probably 30% um, in the short game area and then 10% on the driving range. And, and I also want to say something you said earlier about stats. Stats can be terribly misleading. I, I travel down on the tour for probably three to four years. If you look at the putting stats right. for the top three players in the world, where do you think they stack up in putting? You'd be, you'd be incredibly surprised. And if you look at their ball striking, right. you know, since uh, Jason Day, I think, is not in the top 100 in putting, but he's number one in scrambling. Um, number two, Jordan Spieth, who I'm friends with, he trained at our studio at Motion Sports Dallas, is not what I would consider a great ball striker, but he's a good ball striker. Um, he's adequate enough to get it around the golf course, mm. but he's really good at getting the golf ball in the hole. I mean, if you look at Tiger, when he struggled, yep. when he changed coaches, every time he changed coaches, what, four times in the last 15 years, and for a year and a half, everybody yep. thought he was in a right? So if you take one of the best players of all time, and they struggle in their methodology change, if you go back to what got them to be the best was getting the ball in the hole. When, when Tiger played by Art, I don't think anybody could argue with this. Butch is probably, Butch Harmon's probably one of the best coaches out there to get the most out of their players without making too many changes. You know, when Tiger won the Masters by 12, yep. Tiger said, Butch, we got a lot of work to do. We got a lot of changes to make. I mean, I was there and heard the conversation, you know, secondhand. But the point I'm making is, Butch said, wait a minute, you just won the Masters by 12 shots. You may need to make some minor adjustments and tweaks to the things that you're doing. But there's no major overhaul that's going to happen here. It's just not. And then I think, you know, in time, Tiger felt like that he could make some mechanical changes that he thought was going to improve his golf game. So he went to Hank Haney. I'm just using this as an example. Um, and what happened? Sure. For a while, he struggled, right? And then, you know, he changed to, um, oh, gosh, uh, Sean, Sean Foley. Happened. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to Chris Como. Same thing happened. But you know, if you get away from the art of how you learn to play when he was with his dad, I think that was one of the downfalls in his life, too. We won't get into his personal life. But, you know, when you get into changing those methodologies of how you actually learn to get the ball in the hole, it changes the dynamic of mm-hmm. what made great. And I think that that's lost, as James and Pete both said. I think there's so many myths and fallacies and misunderstandings. That sludge is so apparent today. I mean, I had a conversation with Bill Harmon, uh, Butch's brother, this morning, because he posts a lot of things on social media. And, he, you know, he's just gone through cancer treatments. He's not as healthy as he was. He's not as fit as he was. And I'm, I'm listening to his trials and tribulations and struggles of changes that he's trying to make in methodology. And he works with two of the best players out there, Bill and Jay Haas. And so it's not that Bill yep. doesn't know what he's doing. My observation is that he has so many – physical limitations in his ability, mobility, stability, strength, and so forth to make those changes, that it's not possible. So if you don't change the function first or find the root cause of the effect first, um, you're not going to change your golf swing. Um, It's apparent that that's, that's not worked over time. The players that have kept their coaches the longest, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and so forth, those guys pretty much stay on the same track. Um, consistently, and they may make small adjustments to what they do, but 
you know, they don't make major overhauls because it's not needed. And I think more times than not, I've seen so many great players that have changed coaches and have failed. I mean, I, I, don't, I know Pete and James know who Sam Randolph is, one of the best amateur players of all time. Mm. It was on the cover of Golf World saying can't miss pro, right? I think he won the Zurich Open his first year. And I don't think he made a cut for three years. I don't think he stayed on tour for four years. Um, right. And I won't say the instructor's name, but I think when you try to change what got you where you are uh, because of some methodology or because some named instructor says this is what you need to do but to become a better player, it ruins your instincts, your intuitive ways to play the game. And, and I think that that's ruined golf in some respects. I think that 3D, I think that they're – I won't get into the – the name of the group, but I get into arguments on social media. James knows this for a fact because there's a lot of different philosophies and methodologies that have hurt people in the game and time because uh, they're trying to put them in a model and there's no such model. There's some, there's some commonality to what good players do, but there's yep. differences. Learn that from 3d. If you put Sergio Garcia and Greg Norman next to each other in a 3d capture, there's 9,000 variables in that 3D, there's probably 70% of them that are different. It's just a fact. They just are. Now, that other 30% is what those top 50 golfers in the world do. And Pete knows that because I, I, I've read enough and watched what Pete does and says, I, my parameters of cause and effect are ABC. They're that simple. And I think that James and I kind of mm-hmm. admire that simplicity to helping my students get better faster. And so that's my perspective on that. Well, what a, what a great segue into the mental side of golf. Uh, uh, Buck, thank you for that. That was fantastic. Um, and you're exactly right. You know, I, I, and again, this is not to, to criticize any of some of the great instructors out there, what you just said, because, you know, they've all got their own uh, individual approaches to the game. But you're exactly right. Tiger is probably one of the best examples in, in more recent times. I mean, you know, here he was a young kid, developed his, his golf swing, had some uh, early coaches besides his dad early on in his career uh, before he got out in the, on the PGA Tour. Uh, obviously got connected with Butch Harmon and, you know, just went out there and, and racked up the wins. And I think what happens, and, and I could be wrong, I'm certainly only guessing here because I'm not in Tiger's mind, but I think what happens is – much like so many others, uh, Ian Baker Finch comes to mind. Ian Baker Finch, um, you know, started off with, with really a great career and ended up getting away from golf and now is an announcer, um, not because he wasn't a good golfer, but he sometimes I think at that level they get caught up uh, in the um, pursuit of perfection. And when they're unable to find that, they move on to somebody else that they think, well, okay, maybe this will be uh, the magic you know, elixir or sauce, if you will, to get me to that, you know, that perfect swing I want. And ultimately what ends up happening is it has the opposite effect. They get too technical. They get, you know, even Nick Faldo, um, you know, obviously struggled very early on in his career, got connected with David Ledbetter, went out there and rebuilt his entire swing, went on to win uh, what six major championships and and a slew of others. Um, But then they parted and he tried to do other things. And, you know, his, his game sort of uh, certainly still a great ball striker, but it just sort of fizzled out. Now he's in, in the announcer's booth. And again, I'm not uh, criticizing him, but I think that there's a pursuit of perfection at that level. And I think 
from a mental standpoint, that's not a good thing. So, um, James, I'm going to let you go first this time and, and, and start the, the conversation on mental golf. Um, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of things, a lot of areas that we can talk about. But uh, I'm going to let you start the conversation. Um, how do we get into the minds of our golfers out there and help them sort of get a game plan in their head first before they actually get out in the golf course? Well, this is a good one. Uh, for me, I find that every new student I meet, and then even beyond that, the ones that I work with every week, that there's this time period where the student uh, coaches themselves, even whenever I'm standing there. And, you know, I may have a hard time describing this, but do the best I can. Yeah, so there's lots of players that show up, and they have been, you know, learning golf maybe on YouTube or they've read magazines every month or watched the golf channel. And they have all of these little things in their minds about what they should be doing to hit the ball good. And I would say that there's so much information and it doesn't, I'm not saying that all the information is necessarily wrong. It's just that each player has so much information in their mind that they even have trouble pulling the trigger to even make a swing on the way back. And they have all these little steps that they're processing uh, just before they even take the club away, you know, my grip pressure, I got to keep my right hand soft and my left hand firm. And then I have to tuck my elbow and then I have to keep my head down. I got to keep my eye on the ball. And then so many of them are like, yeah, well, I'm actually trying to look at the back of the ball or I'm trying to look at the inside of the ball. And, and so what I'm getting at is there's so many things that they're attempting to do that they can't even make a fluid swing, you know, from beginning to the end. And hopefully that makes sense. But I actually see that as they're probably over- the number one issue. Yeah, they're over uh, in their own minds. They they are technically in their yeah, own. Yeah, they're way overthinking the process. To make a swing. That's right. Way too many processes going on. And then so what I do is I actually I ask them what they're trying to do. Uh, it, it's part of my interviewing, and as soon as I hear you know five, ten, fifteen things as the lesson is going on. Uh, I try to pay a lot of attention. As soon as I hear something that's ridiculous, I let them know, okay, we got to take that one off the list uh, because it's, it's amazing whenever you actually get them to stop doing most of those things and just let them swing. They actually hit the ball great and the lesson's over and, and, and we're happy. So that's kind of what I see the most. Right. Um, Buck, what about you um, from the mental side of things? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I, I mentor with uh, Dr. David Cook, who uh, wrote the book Seven Days at the Length of Utopia, Golf Sacred Journey. So he's, he's my favorite. But I, I, I love Ian Nielsen and Lynn Marriott, Bob Rotella, Jensen Coop, Michael Hebron. There's so many of those guys that I follow because I, I think the game mentally – and physically go hand in hand. And I think great golf coaches like James and Pete know this, that, you know, if, if you're going to perform under pressure, I, I, I have three rules that I use with, with all of my clients and I'll just tell you what they are. It's pretty simple. You know, how do I get my customer, my client, my student to become comfortable at being uncomfortable because it's going to happen. Um, when you walk from the range to the first tee and you can barely put the ball on the, on the peg, you know, what, 
you know, what, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you seeing? I think they lose sight of the task, you know, which, which is really, in my mind, a reaction to the target. So uh, I put a lot of my students in very uncomfortable situations on the golf course, and I challenge them, and, and, and I compete with them. And I think that's an important thing, too. I have to be able to structure my lessons in a way that I can perform the task just like that I want to coach them in. So I practice that myself. Um, the other thing is, is how do you prep and calm your, your nerves under the gun? Because that's equally as important because uh, your adrenaline's up, your breathing shuts down, your heart rate goes up. And what do you do to calm that? So teaching people how to breathe, I don't know if you guys do yoga or not, but I try to get my students to understand more about how to breathe. Um, and, let, and third, you know, let your eyes tell you the story. Um, you can't smell it, taste it, hear it, but you can see it. And, you know, Mr. Pennock kind of taught me this a long time ago. Take dead aim. That sounds very simplistic, uh, but yet it's very complicated. How do you actually internalize the see, feel, trust mode of believing and have confidence that you've hit that shot? You know, I, I, I used to spend a lot of time around Fred Couples, and he used to say, you've hit a perfect shot with every club in your bag. How good is your recall? And I thought about that for a minute because as a tennis pro, I could remember vividly under the gun playing John McEnroe in a United States Tennis Association junior championship that I won that match, and it was all about recall. I was able to remember exactly the spot that I hit that eighth in the ad court under the gun at 6'6 and a tiebreaker. And I think the players that are in the top of their echelon their recall is so good because they're so task-oriented that they, they're in their own little bubble. I mean, if you watch, you know, the greatest players of all time, whether it's Nicholas or Hogan or any of those players under the gun, if you watch their eyes, I mean, I can, I'm, I guess I'm older than most of you guys, but if you remember Ray Floyd, every time I watched his no. pre routine, <laughs> I yes. had the feeling that whatever he thought that ball was going to do, he was going to do it. I mean, he was going to will that shot to be exactly the way that he saw it. So, anyway, those are my three rules, and I keep it as simple as I can. But I encourage all my students to work with uh, mental game coaches um, because I think that it helps because it gives a formula that's easily understood. I love coaches that spend all of their time with my players on the course. I'm not a big fan of couch coaches. Uh, Like James and Pete, I think we all spend more of our time watching what they do under pressure because that really tells the story. Yeah, and, and, and Pete, before I get you to jump in, I, I just want to add something to that. You're, you're exactly right um, uh, on that point, Buck. I think that, you know, observing what the students do, how they handle themselves on the go- golf course as opposed to out in the, on the lesson tee um, can give you a wealth of information. Anybody can hit good shots uh, on, on the practice range under ideal or perfect conditions. But out on the golf course, when, when pressure's mounting, especially, you know, uh, a, a, a novice player coming up to the first tee, uh, a lot of nerves come in, into effect. Um, they're not sure what to, what to focus on. Um, and, you know, suddenly a million ideas start coming in. Well, I've got to have my grip this way, and I've got to make sure I'm aiming this way. And, and, and all that, that data starts feeling in, and the tension builds, and then ultimately – uh, more often than not, unless they're a more seasoned player, <clears throat> they're not getting off to a very good start. And that's why you often hear many um, amateur players say, well, it takes me about three or four holes to get warmed up. 
And that's because they haven't sort of gotten or grooved into that, that mental pattern yet. So Pete, uh, I, I know you like to keep things simple. What do you do to help your students um, and what should we, as a general rule, maybe uh, in golf instruction, should we be doing to help our students to, to sort of overcome some of these mental barriers that, that they often uh, uh, come into? Well, you know me in simplicity, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you a scenario because it happened <laughs> recently. So we're on the driving range warming up before we're going to play. So I have this particular gentleman, and he finishes by hitting six drivers. Three went left, three went right. Two topped along the ground, and the other four I don't think found the range. So we go over to the first tee, and now the pressure's building. And he walks up there, and he steps up, and he's got that driver in his hand. And I said, all right, let's think about this for just a minute. Over there on the range, when you were relaxed, what happened? I said, how many balls went necessarily towards the fairway? And he said, none. And I said, well, let's think about pulling something else out here to hit off this first tee so we can get started. Let's get started putting the ball in play first with something we know we can hit. Obviously, this driver is not working. We just found the evidence of it over there. So let's just put that away for a while and let's get something else out of your bag. So that to me is it's a little bit of course strategy, but it's also uh, the mental side. Hold on a minute. You know, I always told the people when I was doing mental golf with the, Jake, with the Jacob schools, I said, look, I always ended up hitting drivers only so I could see if I could use it. That was my last thing on the range. I warm up hitting drivers just to see if I could find the fairway. And if I wasn't finding the fairway on the range, there's no way in, you know, God's green earth I'm going to find it when I'm nervous on the first tee. So I better find something I can put in play. Right. So I think it goes back to where you were talking about getting them started, getting them off the course, getting them going, and making them, you know, begin to play. I know the first hole of the course I grew up at, if you hit driver, you had a you know, a less than a full wedge. And I hated that right off the bat, having to hit the manufacturer shot. So I, I never hit a driver off the first hole. I always hit an iron so I could hit a full shot into the green. And, and people didn't understand that. And I said, well, I'm not ready to hit a pitch yet. Not yet. I'm not, I'm not comfortable on the course yet. So let me, let me get comfortable. Then maybe I'll go for that shot. It wasn't one of my strengths. So I always try to look at it from a, from a, an overall visual standpoint of, you know, let's look at what we're trying to do here based on what you just came from. And then on the other side of the coin, I think it changes when you have different levels of players and, and a little mm -hmm. bit on the mental side. And it kind of goes back to just a point I wanted to, to go back to. I always tell my players, I said, look, what we're going to work on, I'm going to teach you how to strike the ball better, but you already know how to play. All I'm going to do is make your shots better, but you haven't forgotten how to play golf. You already knew how to play before I came along. I don't want you to lose sight of being able to play the game. I'm just going to help you to strike it better for what you want to do. So I don't want to get caught up in all the details of what the swing's doing. We're going to make some adjustments to make the ball flight better, make it more consistent, make it fly better. But don't let that overtake your ability to play the game because you know how to play. You're already at a pretty good level. I'm just going to enhance it. So a little bit on, on you know, that piece of it as well. Yeah, I think, guys – you know, to sort of sum this, this part up, I think really from a mental standpoint in, in the game, there's really a number of areas that you can draw from. Uh, first and foremost, I think if you're confident in your ability, number one, as a ball striker, um, obviously that's, that's going to give you a certain element of confidence um, that, that mentally is going to help you uh, navigate around the course. And if, 
if you work on those fundamentals, you know, Jack Nicholas, for instance, you know, talked about in, in Golf My Way, he talked about how, you know, at the beginning of each season, he went out and he worked over all of the fundamentals from start to finish. Every year he started out, uh, obviously the seasons weren't quite as long as, as what they are now. Um, so in his downtime, he didn't play a lot of golf uh, as much as what you might think. He was out doing other things. Um, but when the season, when he was getting ready and fired up again for a new season, he went out and he worked on the fundamentals to, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, Buck, I believe it was you that talked about sort of that recall. He wanted to be able to recall, uh, you know, some of those abilities that he was going to need uh, throughout the, the, the upcoming year. So he went out and he worked on those fundamentals. He didn't go into a lot of swing changes. He knew what worked for his game. He knew what he'd, and that's why, you know, he was arguably, if not the, one of the, the strongest mental game players that has ever lived to this point. Um, and, and obviously Tiger fell into that as well. Um, and the reason was is he didn't try to make a lot of changes. He didn't try. In fact, I think it was only once in his career where he did uh, go to a different instructor, uh, tried to make some changes and, and had um, certainly not success. So he went back to what he knew, uh, Buck, which goes back to a point you mentioned earlier about Tiger. Um, but I think from a mental standpoint, when you're comfortable with your golf game, that can alleviate a lot of the pressure. I think the other thing is not to allow yourself to get too technical on the golf course. Um, you know, think about the shot, one shot at a time. Don't think about five shots down the road or five holes down the, uh, down the road. Think about the shot that you're immediately faced with and work on that uh, and, and execute the shot. And then once that shot's over, then you deal with whatever circumstances. That if you've hit a great shot and you're out in the middle of the fairway, excellent. If you're in uh, the first cut of rough or maybe uh, a little further in, then you work on the next shot. And I think what happens with a lot of players is they're thinking back to all the bad shots they hit. They get up there, the anxiety builds up, and they're just not able to put uh, those steps in place and inevitably end up uh, you know, derailing their, their game before it even gets started. Um, I think lastly, uh, before because we're getting close to the end of our time here, um, let's talk about uh, a little bit about the equipment side of things, about the importance of being fitted properly. Um, Buck, do you want to uh, start that as well? And then uh, the other guys, if they want to uh, add some thoughts to it as well. Um, obviously, being uh, fitted properly for, for uh, their clubs is, is extremely important. Um, tell us a little bit about the process there. Yeah, I... I think the club fitting is one of the most neglected parts of the screening process. I mean, I, I, I see swing flaws um, often is from a cause and effect standpoint because, you know, the club is too long or too heavy or too stiff or too light, whatever it may be, grip size. I mean, there's so many influences getting the right club fitting. And, and, and I think there's a lot of misunderstandings out there from a fitting standpoint. I think that James and, and Pete would both agree that, if you're a serious golfer, there's not anybody out there that doesn't go to a, a good club fitter. Um, and I, I travel on the tour, and those guys have the luxury of having engineers and professional club fitters out there, you know, on a weekly basis. I mean, the average Joe doesn't have that luxury. But a lot of them have the feeling that because they're not very good, they don't need to be fitted. And, that, and that's the worst strategy that you could possibly have. They need to be fitted more than a than a professional because a professional can change something that they do to, to accommodate the club. Um, so, you know, I, I, 
I really, in my screening process, that's one of the first things I do. I evaluate every club in their bag. Um, I make sure that they're fitted correctly. Now, not everybody can afford two or three thousand dollars worth of clubs. So I spend a lot of my time yeah. you know, bargaining and trading and looking on eBay and helping kids. Uh, I have a scholarship fund that I help with kids that can't afford new equipment that um, gets them fitted and put them in equipment that is the right for them. Uh, so it's easier. Um, so uh, I, I, I think that there's, there's not anything better that I can say is that if you're a golfer, you need to be fitted first. Uh, otherwise your swing is going to be terrible from the positioning of, you know, if you get a club that's too light, for instance, to a, a pretty fast player, Pete and James will tell you this, that uh, they're going to try to slow the swing down to start the ball on their line and then manipulate the face at the bottom. Now, somebody that's a, a novice golfer that plays with somebody's clubs, their hand-me-downs from their husband that they cut down that's the stiff shaft that's two inches shorter that has no kick in the club at all, you know, they're going to labor. You know, they're, they're going to have trouble uh, putting the face of the club on the ball. So, um, I spent a lot of time. I, I, I worked with King today. We had a club sitting today with probably 15 to 20 customers. And by the way, I don't know if James and Pete saw this. I'm doing a little um, test this weekend with my lawn drive guys with old technology. I'm taking 43-inch X100 persimmon head 9-degree clubs with a lot of balls. I'm doing a test with my lawn drive guys that swing at 140 to 150 miles an hour just to see the difference in what the technology tells me, um, you know, because they're playing with four or five degree lofts with double X shafts that are 48 inches long and club head speeds that are higher. Yet, if you look at some of the old school guys, Nicholas won the long drive contest, I think it was in 63 or 64, at 367 yards, yep. 43 inch steel shafted driver, nine degree persimmon head, with a lot of ball, by the way. So, right. they're right. to change the mindset yeah. dramatically my opinion of how you play, Pete made a, a, a statement earlier about distance today. I mean, those guys don't worry about hitting the middle of the face because they can get away with hitting as hard as they can and miss hitting it a little bit and still keep it where they can find it. The old school guys back then, they yep. had to hit it on the butt. I mean, their sweet spot was a nickel. And today it's about the size of a silver dollar. So that's why I don't think that you see as many great golf swings today as you did in the old days. That's just my opinion. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, that, that's an interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Buck. You're, you're exactly right because, you know, when you look at a lot of the older players, uh, the Nicholases, the Palmers, the Trevinos, and 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 so on. You know, a lot of them, if you look at them by today's standards, certainly were not pitcher perfect swings, but they were able to execute. Uh, you know, Billy Casper, another one. You know, all great. Uh, ball strikers all uh, were able to close the deal, if you will, uh, out in the golf course and won multiple, multiple tournaments, uh, as well as many majors uh, throughout the group. And, you know, they didn't have the benefit of the, today's technology. And, and um, it would be an interesting test. I, I, I want to hear some more about the results of, of this challenge that you're going to do on the weekend, Buck. I would love to hear more about it. Um, I'll, if you don't have it, I'll get uh, Pete to give you my email. And I'd like to to find out where uh, where I can tune in or find out where uh, more information about that, I think it would be very interesting to see how some of these long guys, uh, long drive guys, do with with some of the older type of equipment. So it'd be very interesting to find out. Um, James, any thoughts that you want to add in about uh, 
club fitting or, or, or uh, that end of it? I mean, honestly, I, I totally agree with Buck. I do a lot of club fitting, and it's one of the first things I do the first day, or if not the second day, uh, evaluating their equipment. Uh, just about everybody shows up with equipment that is not fit for them. And I, once in a while, uh, players show up with uh, new clubs that even after, you know, a handful of lessons, even the new clubs that they've, you know, gone and just bought maybe off the rack uh, turn out to be not a good investment. Uh, so, yeah, I always try to uh, head them off at the beginning and, and make sure that they're not spending the wrong money try to help them myself, you know, with my equipment and, uh, you know, so that they're happy long, you know, and their clubs last them a long time for sure. Yeah. And uh, well said, you know, I think that the the key is, I I think, um, you know, not everybody, as you pointed out, uh, I believe Buck, you pointed out earlier about, you know, spending two, $3,000 on a new set of clubs. Um, You don't have to spend a lot of money on golf clubs, but you do have to make sure that you're fitted properly for whatever set it is that you get. And I think that's more important. And then as you become a better player and, and you know, your financial uh, circumstances change and, and uh, you want to reward yourself a little bit down the road, then you can maybe upgrade to, to uh, maybe a more expensive set. But I think what a lot of people do is they go out, they spend a lot of money on golf clubs that maybe they don't get fitted well uh, for whatever reason, uh, and, and struggle and suffer out in the golf course and then, you know, learn to hate the game even more because uh, they're not getting the, the best use out of, of the equipment that they've got and they've spent a small fortune doing it. So uh, I'm, I'm for spending less but being fitted well uh, and learning to, to play the game and, and uh, advance that way as opposed to, you know, uh, swing for the fences from day one with an expensive set of golf clubs that maybe aren't properly suited uh, or hand-me-downs, Buck, as you had mentioned earlier, uh, hand-me-downs might be great for, uh, you know, for some just to, to kind of get a feel whether they're going to like the game or not and then make an investment. But um, I think you're better to, to get out and, and be properly fitted with your own set. Um, Pete, any final thoughts on, on fitting as well? Um, or do you pretty much concur with the other two gentlemen? Uh, I totally agree with both of them, but I've always put it like this. To me, club fitting is a lot like bowling. If the thumb and finger holes fit, you can bowl your best. If they don't fit, you can still bowl, but it's more difficult. So the better the clubs fit, yep. the better you can play. There's, there's no question about it. So um, there's great, great outfits today. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, Pete, go ahead. I wanted you, because you, I had this discussion. What do we feel as golf professionals um, that the manufacturers have done to the state of club fitting as a whole, because I, you, you guys know, and I know that most manufacturers change their equipment too often. So the average Joe that thinks that they can buy a better game goes out and spends 450 plus on a driver to hit it further or straighter or both, hopefully, um, finds out in six months, the same company comes out with something better. Um, and there's a, fallacy out there that and that's where I get into the myths and misunderstandings of golf instruction as a whole that because I think that club fitting is a part of that that we allow ourselves to be footprinted into this mindset that we can buy a better game I I don't get it me neither well I I agree with you there Buck you and I've had the conversations that 
you know, the lie angles of the irons are too upright. I said that way back when, 20 years ago when they started doing that. I said, you're doing a huge disservice to the masses by making the lie angle so upright. I mean, you're just ruining what they're trying to do. So, yeah, they they can make it uh, so it's a little bit more difficult. Well, and, 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 and I think all the two guys. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I think that I would rather see somebody. No, that's okay. I, I'd rather see somebody spend, you know, three or $400 in learning how to play the game and get out and have some fun and then, as I said a moment ago, you know, maybe reward themselves a little further down the road when they become a better player and, and you know, as a way of, of, of uh, again, rewarding themselves. Um, I, I think to answer, Buck, what you just said um, and, and not understanding, I think it's, it's what we would call effective marketing. I think that these companies have marketed very effectively an idea to the average consumer out there that you can buy your game. And the truth of the matter is you can't. Um, with the exception of going out and getting some good solid golf instruction. There you could buy a game. But again, there's a certain amount of, of individual talent that has to come into it. Um, you know, not everybody's uh, designed or able to play out on the PGA or LPGA or whatever uh, of the many tours that are out there. Um, but everybody can go out and have a good time and have some fun and enjoy the game. Um, and one thing that we didn't really uh, get into here tonight, um, and that is from the player standpoint or the student standpoint is we have to assess the level of commitment. Um, certainly we want to increase our, our lesson plan and we want more students coming out and, and growing the game, but we have to make sure that they're willing to make a commitment on their part, not just a financial commitment of, of taking lessons, but a commitment of getting out and practicing and working on some of the fundamentals and some of the areas of the game that we're introducing them to, because if they're not willing to do that, um, then they're just throwing money out the window. And I think that's, uh, again, why a lot of them, going to your point again, Buck, why a lot of them have bought into this myth that I can go out and buy the game because they don't want to put the time and effort in, but heck, if I can spend three, $400 on this new piece of equipment, maybe I can uh, alleviate some of those issues I'm having out in the golf course. And the truth of the matter is it's not going to happen because it, it, they're not getting to the root cause of what the problem is to begin with. They're just throwing a Band-Aid onto it and sometimes – uh, making it worse. So, um, guys, great discussion tonight. Very interesting, and and uh, I enjoyed it uh, listening to, to each uh, perspective. And obviously, I know you guys agree a lot. You have uh, conversations uh, off air uh, amongst yourselves, and and uh, obviously know what you're doing. And and um, uh, you know, I, I think the exchange of ideas is is important in this industry. I think it's listening to one another and exchanging ideas and learning from one another. I think that's going to help to truly uh, grow this game. I'm going to give each of you just a moment or two, if you will. Uh, and uh, Pete, I'm going to let you go last. But uh, James, if you want to go first, uh, tell the folks that are listening if, if they want to reach out and communicate with you, if, uh, maybe if you can help them with their game, how they can go about doing that. If you've got a website or email or whatever it is that you want to do, uh, Buck, and then Pete, I'll let you uh, close it out. Yes, thank you, Ted. Uh, my website is jameskylegolfacademy.com. And I am located in Oldsmar, Florida, at a uh, private club called Eastlake Woodlands. And even though it's private, I do coach uh, non-members. And uh, we have a great uh, facility down there. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you again, Perfect. Chad. I, I think it's um, great, great dialogue with you guys. Uh, they've enjoyed the conversation. I always learn listening to Pete and James. We 
enjoy our private messaging often on Facebook. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, how to get in touch with me is Buckmeyer's Golf. Um, I'm at Escondido Golf and Lake Club in Horseshoe Bay, Texas. Um, we've got a great facility. We have uh, a lot of technology. I know you don't want to hear all that, but uh, I don't always use it, but uh, it's available. Um, and, of course, it's a great Fazio golf course. Um, you know, I have players that and in, in students that come from all over the country, I'm sure, as Pete and James do, and uh, in, enjoying uh, my learning as I get older uh, with my kids and uh, my grandkids. So, you know, that's been a great focus. Perfect. Uh, and Pete, last but not least, uh, how can the folks re- reach out to you um, for those that are tuning into the program? They can get to me at plainsimplegolf.com. That's P-L-A-N-E for the plain, plainsimplegolf.com. All my information's out there, and uh, they can look through the different uh, various programs that I use. And I'm at the quarry at Crystal Springs is where I do my face-to-face instruction, and I do quite a bit of instruction uh, online. So uh, anyone anywhere in the world, you know, you can get a hold of me, and uh, we can go to work. So there's there's a lot. Uh, it's a big big part of what I do is online instruction. So and um, you know, you can you can learn a lot from a from a video. Um, the cameras are good, and uh, if you know what you're looking for and you know cause and effect, it's a huge advantage when you're looking at 2D videos. So um, don't hesitate to contact me and send those videos, and we'll get to work. Perfect. Well, guys, again, I want to thank you. And, and uh, James and, and uh, Buck, just as a side note, uh, I mentioned this, uh, James, when we uh, were first off air to you, but, uh, Buck, I'm going to extend this as well. Uh, I would love to have you guys come back on independently. You each uh, have, have some uh, specific areas that uh, you might want to talk about, uh, independent of what we talked about tonight. So I'd like to uh, send an invitation. I will uh, send an email to Pete, and he can forward it on. But... Um, uh, for you guys to come on uh, as my guest at another date, and uh, we'll, we'll work on that and, and work into the schedule. But uh, loved having all of you guys on tonight, and I appreciate you giving of your time. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation again. And also, uh, if you guys, uh, James and Buck, if you want to throw your hat sometime uh, on the Coach's Corner panel, we have uh, that uh, usually every Thursday. I, I forwent it tonight, but um, usually we have that every Thursday before uh, my guest uh, interviews, but uh, if you guys are interested, maybe jumping in on a few of those throughout the year, uh, I can send you a copy yeah, of the schedule fun. of that as well, and you can uh, fit that in when it's fun. And we always have a, uh, as Pete will attest to, we always have a good time on the Coach's Corner panel discussion. So um, always yes, try to, to help the students out there. But guys, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you thank very you. much for coming on. Yeah. And, and obviously, I, I wanted the chance you. to talk to you before. Yeah. So happy, happy Fourth of Ju- yeah, happy Fourth of July, and. Um, have a great weekend, guys. Enjoy the holiday weekend, and uh, I look forward to having you come back here on, on Golf Talk Live. Sounds good. Thank thanks, you very much. Thanks, guys. Good job. All right. Thanks, guys. Good night, thanks. All right. Good night. Good night. All right. That was my very special guests, uh, Pete Buchanan and uh, James Kyle and Buck Myers, uh, all Great professionals uh, here on uh, Golf Talk Live tonight. We're talking about the state of uh, the golf profession uh, today and just some of the different topics that we talked about tonight I think are important. And hopefully uh, those of you not only in the industry but uh, also those of you not uh, might have uh, picked up some valuable information as well from club fitting to, uh, uh, to the mental side of the game and just some of the things that you need to be looking for. We want you to come out and, and have a good time. We want you to get out there and be engaged in the game 
uh, it is a it is truly a game for a lifetime. And I think that once you get out there and get your feet wet a little bit, for those of you who have never played the game before, I, I think you'll be surprised at how much uh, you'll enjoy it. But uh, uh, again, I want to thank my very special guests, Pete Buchanan, James Kyle, and, and Buck Mayers for, for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. Great discussion, guys. And most importantly, of course, I want to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners worldwide for faithfully tuning in to Golf Talk Live uh, each and every week. Uh, as I said, I, I get a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches, teach professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs stop by. And it's really through their uh, participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. In addition, I want to thank some of the spo- uh, sponsors and supporters of the show, uh, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com, and you can get a copy of that guide. Jonathan will be more than happy to send one out to you. Or if you're going to be down here in the southeastern part of the United States, uh, from virtually from Texas all the way over here to uh, the northwest part of Florida, uh, you can go into most of your uh, golf pro shops or Edwin Watts uh, golf shops and, and some of the other uh, pro shops along the way and get a copy of the guide they're in most of them there so you can uh, search through but if not you can go to southcoastgolfguide.com and uh, get your hot little hands on a copy of the guide a lot of great golf courses in the area are listed in that guide and uh, all the important information uh, as well as some uh, golf products as well uh, meredith kirk out in south carolina thank you very much meredith for all of your continued support a great teacher professional uh, lpj teach professional in the south uh, uh, myrtle beach area uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, thank you very much for your continued support and spreading the word. Uh, B- Mr. Bernie Pinder from OnticGolf.com, a uh, uh, great line of customized putters. Uh, thanks, Bernie, for all of your continued support. Uh, Sean Kelly, owner of LinkedGolfers.com, and Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thanks, guys, uh, for your continued support uh, of the show. And on that note, uh, I will be back here next week uh, here on Golf Talk Live next Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on Golf Talk Live, and uh, I look forward to having you join me again for some interesting uh, conversation next week. Thanks, everybody. Happy 4th of July, and God bless.